Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. British jobs for British workers was a slogan used by pro-Brexit campaigners in last year's referendum to persuade people to vote leave. But if Europeans leave or no longer take up jobs in the UK, will those jobs go to British workers or will they be lost for good? Will Britain's job market expand or shrink? And will workers' rights be hit in a race to the bottom by UK employers desperate to boost competitiveness? To answer these and other questions, I'm joined by Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and Sarah O'Connor, our employment editor. Sarah O'Connor first. Is Britain's employment market expanding or shrinking? And do we have the kind of skilled workers the economy needs now? It's definitely expanding. The latest data suggests that the employment market is growing really quickly. So there's a huge number of new jobs that are still being created. And this comes on the back of four or five years in which the labour market has really recovered very strongly from the recession. The British Jobs for British Workers slogan is interesting because one of the kind of facts underneath those figures is that actually if you look just at British workers, people who were born in this country, their employment rates are already at a record high, about 75%. So there have never been more British jobs for British workers in reality. According to the latest figures, net migration to the UK fell by a quarter in 2016, driven by EU citizens leaving. Now, how will the absence of EU workers affect the situation? So employers are really worried about this, obviously. To set it in some context, so EU workers account for about 7% of the UK workforce, so not an insignificant number. And they're really heavily concentrated in some particular sectors. I know a lot of people think of EU workers working in fields and factories, you know, really low paid jobs. And that's clearly part of it, but not all of it. So 23% of EU workers are in so-called elementary professions. Those are ones that don't really need any qualifications. But 17% of them are in professional jobs. These are jobs in the city, in banking, in engineering, in teaching, in academia. So actually, they're really spread across the whole workforce. And in some particular sectors, there's funny ones like packing, bottling and canning, where EU workers account for four in every 10 of those jobs. So clearly, they are very important to the UK economy. And the question is, if they go what or who can take their place. And as I previously mentioned, the fact that most British people already have jobs suggests that employers really will struggle to fill these roles. Turning to you, Sarah Gordon, how do British companies see the impact of Brexit and are they worried about skills shortages? They're extremely worried about skills shortages. I mean, if you go and talk to businesses all around the country but in particular hotspots like London and some of the cities, skills shortage and uh, employers' inability to get the workers that they need is their number one priority concern. So that's not just about immigration, but immigration is obviously a very key factor in that concern. 
What they're also concerned about is that the Conservative Party's policies on this do not seem very responsive to the needs of business. So, for example, business via various business lobby groups like the CBI, it's asked that by the end of 2017, there should at least be some clarity about a future high-skilled visa regime. So that's the Tier 2 visa regime that brings in skilled workers into the UK. They would like to see that visa regime expanded and simplified to take account of the loss of EU workers after Brexit. Now, the challenge is, is that if you're an employer, your hiring and investment decisions are not, you know, you don't take them overnight, you plan for them. If we leave the EU in March, April 2019, that's actually not that far away. Now, some politicians have said that business should be doing more to train British workers. Do you think that's fair? And will that help solve the problem? I don't think it's fair in the sense that, as Sarah has mentioned, we are basically at full employment. So it's not that there are lots of unemployed British workers going around looking for jobs. The British workers have frankly never had it so good. The issue is much more about whose responsibility it is to provide skills in a society. And I still believe that the primary responsibility for that lies with the government and the education system. And we and our education system are simply not producing enough of the kind of workers that employers of the 21st century need. So particularly in STEM, so science, technology, engineering and maths, software engineering, our universities and our schools are not producing those young people. That said, more enlightened companies recognise and are increasingly recognised that they have a very important responsibility in this area. And if you are one of those companies, so for example, Siemens in the UK goes into schools, has programmes for schools, also has training programmes which will pay for your degree in engineering or even your postgraduate degree in engineering. So they take school leavers, graduates and postgraduates whom they have supported and allowed to develop the skills that they need. So clearly, there is massive scope for companies to do more in this area, and enlightened companies should be considering doing more. But it is not, I would argue, their primary responsibility. Can I just jump in very quickly and half disagree with Sarah? Just on, you said that British workers have never had it so good. That's definitely true in terms of the number of jobs. But we should just point out, because otherwise people will moan about it, that it's not true in terms of wages. So wages have taken a massive hit since the financial crisis and they're still growing really, really slowly. And that, to be honest, is one of the reasons that a lot of people voted for Brexit was they thought that the presence of immigration was holding their wages down. Now, economists actually have found very little evidence for that, but it's certainly true that lots of people are in work, but they're not really feeling the benefit massively in their pockets. So given what you've just said, will the ending of having so many workers from the EU push up wages? Well, that's a great hope of Brexiteers, but I'm a little bit sceptical that that's going to happen, to be honest. There is not much evidence from the past that that's the pattern that usually emerges. Employers, when they're asked how they're going to cope, they talk much more about things like apprenticeships and training. And often in those surveys, the very last thing that they say they want to do is raise wages. Back to Sarah Gordon. The TUC has warned that workers' rights risk being eroded if the protections enshrined in EU legislation are removed. And how likely is this, do you think? It entirely depends on what a future UK government decides to do, essentially. I mean, because of the Great Repeal Bill, on the day that we leave the EU, all current EU legislation of whatever form will be enshrined in UK law. And of course, 
all employers now are meeting or at least are supposed to meet those standards. And there's no reason to suppose that they will overnight change their practice. And indeed, because of the Great Repeal Bill, that will remain illegal. However, it then depends what policy choices a future government will make about those protections. So I think that, I mean, the TUC is right to worry about, for example, The EU in recent years has taken some pretty radical measures in terms of definition of holiday, definition of temporary work, protection of maternity rights, paternity rights. I mean, these are all areas in which a future government could unpick the EU legislation that's currently enshrined in law. Although there was an interesting survey by the CIPD, which is the Professional Association for HR Managers, where they asked about a thousand employers, what bits of EU employment law would you like to get rid of? And amazingly, they all came back and said, oh, actually, I would quite like to keep it as it is. <laughs> because I think, you know, as as Sarah would easily tell you, like most employers just want stability. They don't want lots of change. Well, so most, yes, most employers want to deal appropriately and correctly with their workforce. I mean, most employers are not Mike Ashley of Sports Direct. You know, they want to look after their workers. And obviously some of these, particularly in the area of social policy, you know, these are seen also as important retention tools, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one question, I'm going to ask the same question to each of you. In terms of employment, do you think Brexit's going to be good or bad? Well, it entirely depends what happens to the UK economy. And I mean, we've seen just recently signs that the UK economy is beginning to slow. Consumption in particular, consumer demand is slowing. If the UK economy slows down, there will be an effect on employment. Therefore, the question actually is, how much is Brexit going to affect the economy? I mean, what we're already seeing is employers delaying investment decisions and delaying hiring decisions. And if that trend continues, there will undoubtedly be an effect on overall employment. I would love to say that I think it will be good, but I also think in the long run it will be bad. For the more kind of touchy-feely reason, I suppose, that we'll have places that are less diverse, have less interesting people with different views, experiences and skills. And I think that's probably going to be bad for kind of long-term innovation and productivity in the economy. I mean, I think one of the things that's forgotten, isn't it, is often the discussion is about big business and big employers. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons why London, for example, has such a vibrant economy is that it attracts a lot of entrepreneurs and startups. So a lot of French people, for example, in recent years have chosen to come to London to do their startup because they felt that the environment for that kind of business was much better here. If they are not allowed to come and do that after Brexit, that has an overall chilling impact on the economy. I mean, just to make one positive point as well, I mean, I think that it is possible, you know, it has to be conceded that there is no reason to believe that we won't, over time, negotiate a trade deal with the EU and indeed, as the Brexiteers promised, trade deals with other countries in the world. You know, it's not a question of trade ceasing after Brexit and thus exporters cutting employment. But I think the main question really at the moment for business is how long that certainty is going to take to arrive. Thanks to Sarah O'Connor and Sarah Gordon and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.